Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, I'm Tom Butler. And I'm Brendan Duffy. You're listening to the James Bond A to Z podcast. Join us on this journey of discovery across the world of the 007 movies as we take an encyclopedic look at cinema's greatest spy films. We'll learn about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind, from Ken Adam to Max Zorin, with the occasional detour down a few rabbit holes. And we'll sometimes be joined by guests with unique insight into the world of Bond. This podcast is in no way affiliated with the James Bond brand, E.ON, or the Fleming Estate. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we do get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us on podcast at jamesbondatz.co.uk. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the James Bond A to Z podcast, where Q is for Quantum of Solace, the 2008 James Bond film starring Daniel Craig as 007. My name is Tom Butler and joining me as we take a deep dive into the making of the 22nd Bond film, it's another blinger with the slick trigger finger for Her Majesty, it's Mr. Brendan Duffy. Hello, that's a bit of a tongue twister for you, isn't it? Well, I was not, <laughs> not looking forward to that one. Um, and making his James Bond A to Z podcast debut, it's the co-author of the 800-page James Bond biography, Some Kind of Hero, and spokesperson for the James Bond International Fan Club, All Round Bond Brain, it's Mr. AJ Chowdhury. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, you, we've been hoping to have you on for for a long, long time. We uh, use your book a lot as as reference for the podcast. And so we're really glad to have you on for Quantum of Solace. I know it's a film you've got a lot to, to talk about uh, on. Um, it's an interesting movie as well in, in terms of the, the Bond canon, because it's one of the first, or as they say, the first direct sequel of the series. Um, and interestingly, was a film that was, in active development while the previous film was 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 being shot so i think there is a lot to talk about with with this one brendan what was your first experiences like with quantum of solace what how did you find it do you know what i this is one of those i can't remember watching this for the first time at all and i would have gone to the cinema to see it because it was 2008 and there's a possibility we actually went together tom maybe because we were at uni at that time but honestly I think every time I watch this film, I delete, I delete it from my brain. <laughs> How about you, AJ? Uh, I'm, I saw it. I was lucky enough to see it at a preview, um, and I remember coming out of the screening thinking this was not Casino Royal two, and I loved it for that. But now, liking Quantum of Solace and defending it, it seems to be like being the defence lawyer for Donald Trump. So, you know, it's a slightly poisoned chalice. But um, I, I still love it. I think it's going to have a rehabilitation. I get why people are a bit mere about it. But, yeah, I loved, I love the audacious of it and all a bunch of stuff. But, yeah, I've all, only had positive vibes about it since I saw it in 2008. Um, but I've seen it slowly come up to the ranks with the re-releases and slowly people sort of prod me in the chest and so 
it's not as bad as I thought it was initially. But you know, here we go. That's what we'll we'll go. I, I'm fully aware. It's funny. I'm old enough to remember when License to Kill followed The Living Daylights, and it had a similar vibe. It had a classic Fleming-based, wonderful Bond film that got back to Fleming, and Timothy Dalton was the Bond du jour. And then License to Kill came out a couple of years later, set in Latin America, that attempted to play about with the formula, and that fell on, especially in the UK, sort of slightly deafer ears, and that's taken a bit of time. And there's a lot of parallels being Quantum following up the classic Casino Royal and License to Kill following up the classic Living Daylights. But obviously that's a that's a slight parallel there. But yeah, so yeah, I, I have positive memories, but I totally get and understand the um, the uphill struggle we've got. Probably, although probably like the filmmakers themselves when they had to follow Casino Royal, which was so such a reinvention. This was something that was a bit of a challenge. That's right. Um, I remember that I went to see this as one of the very first press screenings I ever went to. I'd uh, just got my job at Rotten Tomatoes and got an invite to this. And I've still got the invite to it. It was a big, hard sort of cardboard thing for it. So I remember going to it and being just sort of wowed by the whole experience of seeing this film early. And it wasn't early. It was probably a couple of days before it came out because that's how Bond films are screened, aren't they? Um, but for that reason, I've got fond memories of it. But I do remember distinctly at the time that it, didn't go down that well in the room uh, I, I felt like there was a bit of a muted ending for the film uh, a muted response from the crowd there wasn't sort of the uproarious uh, response there had been to sort of sort of Casino Royale um, so I do remember it fondly and it is one that I'm happy to revisit because yeah it's got a very short run time which uh, is, is helpful but yeah, let's talk about, first of all, the context that this film came out in. As AJ said, it, Casino Royale had been a, a big hit uh, for Eon, commercially and critically. And as I said, the sequel had been greenlit before Casino Royale had even been finished. Um, and a release date set for May 2008. It was in, That in itself was an incredibly ambitious move um, and ambitious time frame that had been set for its release. And we'll come on to that into, into a second, in a second. But in terms of where it came out and the year that it came out, so the film ended up being the seventh highest grossing of the film of, of 2008, the top being The Dark Knight, um, obviously the sequel to Batman Begins, a film that had, you know, had its influence on Casino Royale itself. So it was interesting that the sequels came out at the same sort of time. Other films out that year include Indiana Jones and the Crystal Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, Kung Fu Panda, Hancock, Mamma Mia, and at number eight, a film called Iron Man, which uh, was never heard of again. <laughs> Other notable films that year. Actually, it was a really good year for movies, I seem to remember. There was Speed Racer, Incredible Hulk, Wanted, Wally, Hellboy 2, Step Brothers, Pineapple Express, Tropic Thunder, The Wrestler, Valkyrie. So it was a solid year for Hollywood. Earlier that year, the film that had won the Best Picture was Slumdog Millionaire, directed by Danny Boyle. So, um, yeah, quite an interesting year for movies. But just a quick synopsis before we dive into the pre-production on the film. So on a non-stop quest for justice that crisscrosses the globe, Bond meets the beautiful but feisty Camille who leads him to Dominic, a ruthless businessman and major force within the mysterious quantum organisation. So that's sort of a, a brief synopsis. Um, so let's dive in first by talking about the director of the film, Brendan. The great thing about me not really knowing much about this is that all this was brand new to me. It's not like something I'd read over and over again. So um, obviously, like you said, this was being put in pre-production while Casino Royale was, was still in post. 
and they announced Roger Michelle was going to direct in July 2006 and it would be based on an original idea by Michael G. Wilson. So it was then given a 2nd of May 08 release date and obviously Daniel Craig was coming back as Bond. But October 2006, so what's that, three, three, four months later, Roger Michelle stepped down um, because he was worried about the script and he said, uh, well, I did give up directing the Bond film it wasn't quite $8 million, but it was a lot of money. It was because in the end, I didn't feel comfortable with the Bond process. And I was very nervous. There was a start date, but really no script at all. And I like to be very well prepared as a director. So yeah, he, he realized that if he was doing it, he'd only be doing it for the money and his friendship with Daniel Craig, who he directed in Enduring Love and The Mother. So he decided to step aside. And with his departure, Sony uh, decided that the schedule of 18 months was an extremely short window and they decided to push the release date back to late 2008. And then in June 2007, Mark Forster was confirmed as director. So you can go back to our F2 episode where we talk in detail about Mark Forster um, and his career. But he said, initially he said no. He said, I really didn't see any upsides I was at a place in my career that I felt within $20, $40 million range, I could do any film I wanted with complete creative control. There was no upside until I met Daniel. I really connected with him. Then I read this quote from Orson Welles that his biggest regret was never making a commercial movie. It's quite interesting because we hear quite a lot about people meeting Daniel Craig and it changes their mind, don't we? Mm. That's something that has been apparent uh, along the way. He's also surprised that he was initially he was initially approached anyway because he wasn't really a big bond fan and he wouldn't have accepted it if he hadn't seen casino royale either um, which he felt had uh, shown the human side of bond he was also the first bond director not to come from the british commonwealth um and then swiss is he yeah so he was born in germany but raised in switzerland so in terms of casino royale he thought the 144 minute running time was too long and he wanted to follow it up with something tight and fast like a bullet. So with that, he needs a script. AJ, what can you tell us about the script? Well, I mean, yeah, Mark Foster was an unusual choice. I think they had a bunch of action directors lined up. And I remember reading it in the trades and you had Jonathan Mosto and Tony Scott, XYZ. And you had conspicuous by his non-suitability, Mark Foster. Um, I'd seen and loved Mark Foster's previous films, uh, The Kite Runner and Finding Neverland and Strange than Fiction. And I think when one analyzes a Bond director, I think a key thing is do they understand the British idiom? So no matter where they're from, all Bond directors appear to have directed a film that seems to be very British. And I think that was key. Also, the fact he wasn't an action director has happened in history from Lewis Gilbert to Michael Apted to all these sorts of things. So the precedent was set. Um, and it, after rejuvenation critically of Bond with from Casino Royale, I think they were taking the franchise out for a spin. Both Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli had said they sort of were creatively uh, bereft after Die Another Day, and they wanted to explore things. And I think one of the key things they brought on in Casino Royale and the through line is Paul Haggis, the Oscar-winning writer-director of um, Crash and other movies, and... Um, I think he is a key component. The, the script was 
started by uh, uh, Robert Wade and Neil Purvis. Unusually, they'd, as you mentioned before, they'd started developing it before Casino Royal was out. Um, Sony, having refinanced and bought into MGM, probably had pockets to do that. And after the huge commercial and critical success of Casino, they wanted to hit the ground running. And, of course, they end up delaying it, uh, as, as uh, Brendan has said. And they so this picture was developed in 2007. And very unusually for a Bond film, and I don't think it gets enough credit, it's sort of all Bond films have a topical quality to it. But this was also seen and likened later as a political thriller. And in many ways, when I first saw it, one of the overt things was how much it seeded some sort of comment on the intelligence services, Britain and America, comment on the way we were in the world. So it's inspired by a real-life incident in Bolivia where uh, the Bechtel company tried to privatise the water system in 1999-2000, aided and funded by other Western uh, Western organisations. I think Quantum is a comment on that. I think the plot is misunderstood. This story is not just about the water supply in Bolivia, although it seems to be like that. They also talk about controlling resources in Canada worldwide. They talk about the domino theory, which is a play on words of, you know, in the, in the in the 60s, the Americans thought if one company went communist, everyone would, it would be a domino theory. Well, that's being reversed here, uh, the domino theory of quantum's power, sort of controlling the world's resources and governments. And it's a riff on the Iraq war, which had been misled misdirected for oil or weapons of mass destruction here it cleverly water it was replaced by oil and there's an ecological theme to it they also um, talk about the interference of western intelligence services in haiti under papa doc duvalier um, which is mentioned by not by name with you know priests with tennis sneakers and shoes in central america um, bond comments on to lighter about what a mess the cia made of it and lighter retorts, you know, that's good coming from a Brit with its colonial past. All these things are seeded overtly. So it's not obviously there, but if you if you if you relish it watching it now, it holds up and those are really cleverly done. And I think people who understand the context of quantum and Paul Haggis had written and directed a picture before called In the Valley of Ella, which sort of exp- explicitly sort of talks about the Iraq war. And so the intelligence services were completely sort of mistrusted and thought to not be doing the right thing. So you've got Greg Beam of the CIA, played by the wonderful David Harmer. You've got the Foreign Office just following, like America's Poodle, played by Tim Piggott Smith. And Bond, this Bond film has a grit and an edge to it, which doesn't really get appreciated, which still holds up because I don't think those services are there. So the plot about controlling water, I think, is very Bondian. And I think based on real events, and I think that the subtext to it, the quantum of solace was Bond's finding a, a quantum of solace for the death of Vesper. And of course, uh, Camille Montez trying to find a quantum of solace for the death of her family and avenging herself with General Jarnett. It's a shame they didn't use the Ian Fleming short story, which comes from the 1960 collection, For Your Eyes Only, where Bond is a bit part player in it. And he sort of, witnesses and listens to a tale of a marital dispute in Bermuda and um, and sort of walks away thinking that sometimes real life uh, domestic violence and domestic issues are more violent than his sort of sabotaging 
some communist vessels over there. So it's a kind of nice Somerset Mormian tale by Fleming that could have been used, but is not referenced at all. And again, we don't even get the title. So I like that sort of writing behind it. Um, Purvis and Wade's initial draft was going to be about Bond tracking down Yusuf Kabira and torturing him to find out what happened to Vesper. And it turned out Vesper betrayed Bond not to protect Bond, but to protect the child she'd had with Vesper, who's found that child had found an orphanage at the end in Albania. So the idea of Bond being involved with a child was seeded there. And Bond, in fact, doesn't look after the child. He just gives the the monastery uh, lots of money to look after the child. Um, The plot was going to follow um, stolen artefacts from Libya. And uh, Bond was going to get involved with Quantum with a villain called Dante. And um, it seemed to be a very different picture than the one they ended up with, which they developed with Roger Michel as I think Robert Wade said the biggest action sequence Roger Michel had faced was a book falling off a shelf. So it had an interesting complexity, which then got completely rewritten, although there were elements in the Purvis and Wade script and also elements, as we know from Bond films, that probably belong to other films. So I believe the coda was at the Bregenz opera and Bond, the end scene is Bond is a silhouette in the eye and you know he comes back to being the man who was a silhouette and Mr. White was always going to die at the Palio and because um, he had a passion for horses. So these elements sort of came back later in later films. But um, Purvis and Wade then got rewritten by Paul Haggis, who brought in all that political satire, which I think is really good, where it's subtle and, and new and novel for a Bond film. And, of course, much has been made that the script wasn't completed due to the writer's strike. Um, this has happened a lot on a lot of films. From Russia with Love had the script being rewritten uh, while it was being shot, The Spy Who Loved Me, um, Goldeneye. Um, I don't always think that's a valid excuse. I always think cause, uh, Quantum of Solace is a bit like an album who that's unpopular by a rock act and they deny its quality, even though they put a lot of soul and heart into it because at the time they weren't denying Quantum. It was a brave direction. It wasn't Quantum of Solace 2. And then, of course, the script was rewritten by the uncredited Joshua Zentuma, a big-name writer, who incidentally had um, done draft work on the Bourne pictures, which obviously influenced uh, the Bond picture, uh, Quantum, overtly more so than Casino Island. Probably we'll get back to that. But yeah, so the script was this, um, I think, the clever take and satire on world politics with this Bondian plot about controlling, again, novel and ecological. And if you watch the film, there's all these things seeded visually. The opening shot is on water. Um, a lot of the principles are drinking beer and water, um, consuming water, and the eco- ecology is a subtext and the theme of the movie. And that ironic ending where, um, you know, Dominic Green is in the desert and all he's got is oil to drink. Again, it's a comment on the Iraq war. It's a comment on the Western obsession with oil. And um, so I love all that stuff at Quantum and Solace, that if you watch it again, you might pick up on it and enjoy it, even though it's not a typical Bond film with, you know, all the tropes. And we'll come back to why people didn't like it later. But that's uh, Exhibit A, Your Honour. So Mark Forster, as you mentioned, he was had reservations about doing the film, but um, from what from reading between the lines, he spoke to a, f- a few of his key collaborators, and they were sort of quite um, insistent that he should do it. They said, you know, you should um, 
if you get offered a Bond film, you'd be mad to turn it down. And one of those being Roberto Schaefer, who was his frequent uh, cinematographer, an American cinematographer. Um, now, uh, when he told, when Mark Forster told him, he just said, you know, take it, like, go for it. Now, Roberto Schaefer had, is known for working on Christopher Guest movies. He did Waiting for Guffman, Best in Show, for your consideration. And then with Mark Forster, he'd done everything put together, which was Mark Forster's debut. And Monster's Ball, the movie that got Halle Berry, Halle Berry her Oscar when she was making Die Another Day, Finding Neverland, Stranger Than Fiction, and The Kite Runner. Um, he said, like I said, he was quick to say yes as well. He said the dream of doing Bond sort of sucked us into the reality of it. Um, and talking about um, designing, getting a visual style for Quantum of Solace, he said, we watched most of the earlier films to look for the keys to the kingdom. In the end, we took, uh, we think that we were most taken with the Goldfinger period and the 1960s design aesthetic. And you mentioned Goldfinger there, but uh, obviously the film has a massive Goldfinger reference in the death of Agent Fields. Um, he uh, also said that action sequences and the light were kept more realistic than earlier Bond adventures. There was an attempt to achieve a more tactile, more visceral effect to the fights and chases. He wanted to shoot in anamorphic, um, but they weren't able to do that, unfortunately. And he mentions in an interview that I read um, the, the idea of this four and a half month picture uh, release date from from the picture wrap, which he uh, he could see as being uh, prohibitive um, right from that point. Um, another uh, collaborator that Forster brought with him was Matt Chesse, the editor. We covered Matt Chesse on an earlier episode. But he um, had been nominated for Best Film Editing for Finding Neverland, which he'd done with Mark Forster. And they also brought in, because of the quick turnaround time, an editor called Richard Pearson, who had worked on the Bourne franchise. Um, I'm sure we'll be mentioning Jason Bourne a fair bit in this episode. New production designer was brought in for this one as well, um, because uh, Quantum, uh, Casino Royale was um, with Peter Lamont's final Bond film. Is that right, AJ? Yes, that's right. So we've got Dennis Gassner. He's an American-Canadian product designer and uh, would go on to do three Bond films, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall and Spectre. We've covered Gassner recently on the podcast, um, but he talked about being inspired by Daniel Craig himself. He says he's our James Bond. That He has that great face. It is angular and chiseled. He's great textures to his face and, of course, his piercing blue eyes. From that moment, we started to create the language and built it up from there. Someone else who was brought in new, Louise Frogley, to do costume design. She'd worked a lot with Steven Soderbergh and George Clooney. Um, and she was the one that brought Tom Ford into the franchise. Um, she talked about how um, a lot of the stuff wouldn't be right for Daniel Craig or Bond because Bond wears more of a uniform and you want to hide the muscles in a suit. Otherwise, he ends up looking like Arnold Schwarzenegger. A few other key creatives to mention, Kevin Todd Hogg, he was the visual effects supervisor. He'd worked with Mark Forster earlier and he worked with um, CGI to sort of intensify the action. Um, he would later go on to do what the first Kingsman film. Um, and sort of rounding out uh, the Mark Forster connections is MK12, the title design artists. And we'll talk about these a bit later. But they were brought in to do all the motion graphics for the film and ended up being asked to do the title sequence as well, taking over from Daniel Kleinman, who'd done the last few. Um, in fact, he'd done them all since uh, GoldenEye. And they were the ones that brought in the title cards for the different locations. They did the graphics in MI6. They did um, the gun barrel at the end. So they did, they're very, very involved with the production of the film. Um, and then finally, 
sort of returning people, you've got David Arnold doing the score, Debbie McWilliams, as usual, doing the casting, Gary Powell on stunts, Chris Corbold on special effects, sound design by Chris Munro, and then, very importantly, you've got Dan Bradley, second unit director on Quantum of Solace. He had done Born Ultimatum, Indiana Jones 4, Ghost Protocol. He'd recently done Jurassic World Dominion, and he worked very closely with Mark Forster to sort of design and build the action sequences up to what they were because as Mark Forster's own admission he wasn't really a big action guy but it's quite a team that he assembled for um, Quantum of Solace and I think it gives the film a different vibe different aesthetic um, Mm. different to uh, Casino Royale and yeah just different for, for Bond overall. So returning cast so we've got Daniel Craig back as Bond um, and he again went through a brutal physical training regime he felt he was actually fitter for this one um and a bit more svelte compared to the first that he'd done um but he said casino royale was physically a walk in the park compared to quantum of solace so you know with with all that action um it's it obviously required a different performance from him um judy dench returns as m for her Sixth, would this be a sixth? Yeah. Right, yeah. But I've got a quote from her about after she'd seen the film. She said um, about the plot, I know it was hard, wasn't it? I didn't have a clue what was going on. I just did my bit as I was told. I should know though, shouldn't I? Being all-knowing, all-seeing M. So uh, Judy Dench found it hard to follow. Throwing shade. Um, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Giancarlo Giannini as Rene Mathis. He's back, who... Obviously, in Casino Royale, you're not sure if he's an ally or he's working against Bond. Um, but in this, uh, he is an ally. And so he's a prize for it. He does indeed. Um, Jesper Christensen as Mr. White. And um, it's it's seeing Mr. White in the boot that we sort of know this is this is direct sequel. This has just happened. It's that That really confirms it, doesn't it? Jeffrey Wright is back as Felix Leiter. Um, see the Felix Leiter episode for an uh, in-depth look at Jeffrey Wright and his version of Felix Leiter. Um, he was due to have more screen time with this, but because of the rewrites on the script, actually lost lost out on on that screen time, sadly, because uh, we, we all agree that he's a, he's a really good Felix Leiter. And what about the new cast, AJ? Well... Quantum had a great cast of uh, uh, actors and actresses that sort of kind of fell in with the Daniel Craig era, really top quality European, um, not stars, but really good actors, topped by Mathieu Almeric, a French uh, actor of great renown who had got critical success in The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, had acted opposite uh, Daniel Craig or with Daniel Craig. I don't think they share scenes in Munich the Steven Spielberg film in 2005. And, of course, I acted with, uh, I think, Michelle Lonsdale and uh, Sean Bean in in, in, um, in that movie as well. Um, no, not Sean Bean, sorry, in that movie. And um, he was inspired by Daniel Craig's realism, and he wanted his Bond villain not to be a sort of recognisable villain. We're a bit like... Um, Julian Glover as Christatos. He was meant to be a normal, everyday person. Um, in a sign of the times, uh, Almerich sort of channeled a combination of Blair, Tony Blair, and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, the then French premier. And um, I think 
they wanted him to be very sort of oily and sinister, which he was naturally as an actor. Um, and I think sort of, you know, as I said before, I like the political subtext of the plot. I think he could have done with a lot more exposition and set out his scheme a little bit more clearly and given a few grander scenes. That's the problem with a Bond villain. Sometimes if they go too small and too quiet, they don't, they're not really effective. But I think he's a terrific actor. He's gone on to have a fantastic career as well. And I think he was well paired with Daniel Craig. Um also well paired with Daniel Craig was Olga Kurilenko, uh, the Russian-Ukrainian actress, who was an up-and-coming actress who has gone on to have a solid career. I think she starred with Pierce Brosnan in a later action movie. Um, she saw herself as the kind of opposite of Bond. They couldn't quite connect. And in fact, they don't have any sort of love scenes. They have, an, they have a kind of combative, competitive nature. She's a Bolivian agent. Camille in the movie... Um, her last name is, is Montez. Her family's killed by uh, General Meldrano, and that's her impetus to g become Dominic Green's lover to get to Mendrano. Again, I like that sort of in in very insinuous sort of storyline she's got. Um, she proves herself capable. She's tough. She's competent. She's a Bolivian secret agent who Bond comes to respect, and they go through quite a lot together. Um, and then we have Gemma Arterton. It's odd, this is a tonal shift in Quantum of Solace. Bond doesn't really sort of have a romantic liaison with Camille Montez because he's still haunted by the death of Vesper. But of course, he does get together with Agent Fields. Uh, her name is revealed as Strawberry Fields on the Beatles song, uh, only in the titles. And um, again, she was doing a play and got cast. And it's interesting that both Olga Kurilenko and Gemma Arterton have had great post-Bond careers and um, I think they're really worthy and very entertaining in the movie. You've got um, uh, Jochen Corsin uh, who played General Mendrano. As usual, you always have a sort of military figure who's completely evil and villainous and I think he really was sinister and really bad, especially towards the end. Um, um, the waitress in the, in the hotel in the desert is played by Charlie Chaplin's granddaughter, Una. And then you've got also uh, Greg um, uh, Greg Beam, played by David Harbour, who's gone on to become a huge star in Stranger Things. And he's particularly successful as an oily CIA character who sort of has to work with the villains and is quite knowing about it. Again, going back to the political backstory and the scenes between him and Felix Leiter are quite delicious as Felix tries his best to protect Bond. And he's really well played. And then you've got, well, Tim Pickett Smith is the Foreign Secretary, who's sort of a nice, he's a, a big British star that has a nice cameo appearance. Um, and then, of course, you've got the voiceover, a few two nice guest appearances. Uh, the directors, Guillermo del Toro and um, Alfonso Cuaron, who were the voices of pilots in the dogfight sequence with the um, Dakota uh, propeller plane at the end. Um, the sequence which uh, ends on a... Um, uh, 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 a parachute sequence which they did in CGI which was going to be done for real which was an idea parachuting a sinkhole that they had got from Goldeneye the original draft of Goldeneye when they were going to go to Cuba they're going to parachute into Cuba in a sinkhole so they just retasked that idea and did it in my view slightly less well I think uh, you talked about Kevin Todd Howe doing special effects and CGI I think in many places it worked and this is what the tension was somewhat between the Bond filmmakers who made the old Bond films 
and the new Bond films uh, with um, uh, uh, making, um, trying to find new ways of doing things on camera movement and CGI stuff. Also, another guy who was added to the collection of the Whitehall Brigade was Rory Kinnear. Remember, we didn't have Money Penny or Q yet, but Rory Kinnear becomes the, I think, the fourth actor to play Bill Tanner. And his Tanner is a nice sort of Basil exposition. Um, we've got that nice high tech um, um, uh, set at M's office, different again from Casino Royal, and her apartment is different. But yeah, all these new uh, Rory Kinnears obviously survived and been retained throughout the Daniel Craig era. So yeah, there was a whole bunch of returning cast and new crew, and it was interesting how a lot of them had come from independent cinema in the past, and they kind of infected and infused this film with that spirit as well. It- Interesting with Olga Kurylenko as Camila um, Montez. I think she's she's great in this movie, but um, I'm not sure nowadays you'd get away with casting uh, uh, Eastern European in a Latin American role. Um, mm. And they sort of make a gesture towards that in the film, don't they? Talking about one of the parents being Russian. Um, yeah, I think so. I think she but... got quite close to Mark Foster as well during the shooting. So I think um, there were sort of rewrites done. But yeah, I think... All that sort of stuff there is kind of yeah. There's lots of things in a few years you wouldn't redo in a Bond film, you know. But I guess that was the sign. It's amazing how quickly things have. It doesn't seem that long ago now, really. This film, but uh, yeah, I don't think you'd get away with it now. But yeah, I mean, I think it's got it has got a terrific cast. And after when when you sort of listing them all out, a lot of them have gone on to have really big careers, haven't they? Um, Una Chaplin, I think, went went on to be in Game of Thrones as well, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, I think it's a sign of Debbie McWilliams and all the Bond actors, I think, probably maybe even since Goldeneye, have gone on to have some sort of career. They haven't disappeared, and certainly in the Daniel Craig era. Firstly, they're great actors, great actors in the pictures and have gone on. And also, I think they've been aided by good scripts and good direction. I mean, a lot of these scenes are unexposited in the pictures. So Camille's backstory is inferred, the burn on her back she got from fire. They don't ever sort of point it out overtly. And a lot of that stuff is done through just direction and giving the audience some intelligence. I mean, we've also got Anatole Taubman as Elvis, who was touted as being um, Dominic Green's sort of hench person. But this is where I think the film started to do a few reversals. It didn't give us the usual bomb tropes. There's no gun barrel at the beginning. Um, the hench people and the gadgets aren't there. And I think there was an element of Bond fans and people being disappointed by it not having the usual things. It was a continuation of the Casino Royal journey. Remember, Casino Royals, the idea was that he hadn't become Bond until the end of the movie. So at the beginning of this movie, is he supposed to be Bond? But we're still seeing his journey. Uh, and of course, there's some nice moments that follow it. You know, his, when he's downing all those martinis on the plane with Mathis, and he's taking that line of dialogue from the, the scene in Casino Royale, the novel about, you know, goodies become baddies and you can't tell the difference anymore. There's a lot of that character subtext in the movie, which, again, is atypical for typical Bond movie. It kind of etches out the Daniel Craig era, which rewards reviewing. But when someone initially watched it, they must be saying, where's the henchman? Where's the gadgets? Where's this? And I think that knocked a lot of people for six. They thought, well, we've earned this now. He's got the Bond theme. Uh, but it didn't quite happen, in my view. So production. Um, so some of the earliest footage shot for Quantum of Solace was of the Paleo horse race in Siena in Italy, and that was filmed by a splinter unit in August 2007. Um, 
there had been plans to use the the paleo horse racing casino royale at one point uh, and director the, the original director roger michelle had also attended the race in 2006 with purvis and wade on a scouting mission but eventually it ended up being a part of the quantum of solace um sequence that happens after the uh the, the pre-titles um and the original idea from what i understand was to have bond caught up on a horse within the race um don't know how true that is but the um Apparently the organisers wouldn't allow that. Um, so in the end, they they just took a, a small unit with 14 cameras to capture different um, parts of the race. And they were they then later used it in Quantum of Solace. So that was the very first bit. Now, later on in the, the this, uh, shoot, they did return to Italy in May 2008. So nearly a year later to shoot the rooftop chase that was then intercut with the horse race. Um, and there were about 300 ex- extras that were put into the Piazza del Campo. Um, and this is where James Bond is chasing Mitchell um, through the crowd. Um, now, second unit director Dan Bradley really praised Daniel Craig's commitment to to the stunts during this sequence. And I know when they released that Daniel Craig documentary last year around No Time to Die, they show a lot of the footage of him doing a lot of the stunts. And he talks about how he really threw himself into the stunts because um, he felt like the rest of the film was perhaps going to be lacking. So he really wanted to make mm. a good fist of the stunts. And Dan Bradley um, brings a very Bourne-esque style to it. And it's got that whole jumping through the balcony, which actually I think happens in another Bond, uh, in a Bourne film, right? There's the fight yeah. with, the, with the book yeah. and the pen. Um, now, the Italian shoot then continued in Lake Garda, um, where they'd shot the Aston Martin versus Alfa Romeo chase there were a lot of um, road closures for that and they used i think seven aston martin dbs for that um there were some issues while they were shooting this this is well documented one of the aston martins span off the road um while it was on the way to a press event and ended up in lake garda and there was another crash that injured one stuntman uh, and uh, so he was hospitalized with injuries um so yeah, I mean, Italy's a very sort of prominent part of Daniel Craig's era. I think he, um, I'm trying to think, he returns to it in Spectre and in No Time to Die, doesn't he? Um, but yeah, I seem to remember when we talked about uh, Ben Collins, the stunt driver, mm-hmm. that he said that the ty- that the car chase at the beginning was originally envisioned to be much longer. Yeah. Do you know anything about that, AJ? Um, yeah, there were lots of interesting ideas. So they went on a big location recce in in Italy. Um, I think Paul, that was one of Paul Haggis went on it. And they had lots of ideas which they visited, including Matera. And um, there was a, a big car chase on a big sort of autostrada, Italian autostrada, which were ideas they threw around. And eventually they ended up with this sequence in which the, the key thing is going through Carrera, the marble um, uh, quarry. But yeah, I think they were quite inspired by intensive, intensive recce's there. And I think it boiled down to, you know, what looked good, what was um, the car chase in what they ended up shooting in Carrera was meant to have gone inside the quarry as well in the tunnels and um, continued in there. But I don't think they thought that feasible. And in the end, they, they kind of, it's quite short and sharp, which I kind of like. Um, so yeah, those they they had lots of ideas, and I think once again it's an evolution of the previous Bond films where it's not really a big stunt idea; it's just a hard-hitting, visceral, 
sound effects driven, editing driven, really hard car chase. When you watch it in the cinema, the sound really comes to the fore. Um, but yeah, they had lots of ideas. At no point, I think, was it ever going to be this sort of um, you know big stunt idea or anything like that. But it was quite earthy and gritty. I love the bit where the car door gets knocked off and it sort of leaves Bond really exposed. I think that's quite a cool moment. Yeah, I was going to say, also, you've got a slight hint of what was to come in the movie because there's that Dan Bradley hardcore editing, but there's also some nice sound effects and slow motion stuff where they let the action sort of, when the car spins out of control, There's that's not Bourne-esque, that's very Mark Foster-esque. We see that later on in the opera sequence. So, again... Uh, obviously, the B- B- Bourne was flavor du jour, but it's got a few spins on it by Mark Foster and the Bond team here um, as well. So just jumping back in the timeline just quickly, they um, and had to find a title for the film. Well, obviously, for a long time, it was Bond 22. Yeah, so January 2008, they finally confirm it as Quantum of Solace. Which, like AJ said earlier, is um, is a name of a short story in Ian Fleming's book for your eyes only. Obviously, it doesn't take any of the source material from that. Um, and Michael G. Wilson actually said that the title had been decided only a few days before it had been announced. Um, other names that were considered were the Royal Creed, Risico Quesi, and Agent in Risico. The those two titles were referencing the um, short story Risico, which is also in for your eyes only. Um, in an interview, Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli were asked about the title and um, Michael G. Wilson said, the, the people who have to market the film aren't quite sure what we're doing. And uh, Barbara said, it's certainly unique and it's from Fleming and it's not derivative. I mean, how many times can you have kill or die or another time or whatever? Which I <laughs> thought was interesting considering the title we've just had. Um, and Mark Forster, uh, I did cover this in the Forster episode, but I think it's worth revisiting. He said, when I signed on, we had a release date, but no script and no title. During pre-production, um, Barbara Broccoli and Michael G. Wilson, they called Forster to, to their office and there was a poster and it had the proposed to- title on there and it was laid out in front of him and he had a look. That's the title. Well, what do you think? Uh, I'm not sure, Forster replied. Where is this going? But luckily he did grew, he grew to actually get used to the title and said, uh, at least it's created discussion. Um, and I remember, uh, it must have been close to when it was announced, but do you remember Adam and Joe did their own versions of the theme yes. tune? Yeah. And very much playing on the fact that the, the title would, sounded like nonsense. It's got the stunting from the Bond films and lots of product sponsorship. Yeah, I remember that the response was very much a sort of a head scratching one. Obviously, for Fleming purists, they all know the the title straight away. But um, it was, I think we had, was it? Yeah, it was Chris Tilley who we'd had on the podcast, and he said that he was at the studio on the day that they, they announced it. Uh, and um, yeah, there was just a muted sort of huh? to, to, to the to the title. Um, I did read as well that Paul Haggis had a title, and it was Sleep of the Dead. I don't know if you've heard that before. 
Yeah, I mean, he told it to Matthew Field and I for our book, Some Kind of Hero. He, he, he stole that title to us, which I think is a good title considering, uh, you know, it has kind of the same essence of the meaning of Quantum of Solace. Um, I just want to defend the title. Firstly, um, these days, a Bond film title, you know, once intertwined with the 007 logo, it doesn't really matter. People go, can we see the Bond film? Uh, it was from F- Fleming's short story and people scratching their heads saying, I don't know what it means. And a lot of the reviews talked about the, the alleged inarticulousness of the title. And I think, well, if you'd seen a foreign film, you don't know what the title means there. So are you really being so Brexity and ignorant that um, it, it, it's really, <laughs> it is really kind of insularity of, of the kind of the English speaking people when it's a perfectly good English phrase. So would you really say, if you don't understand a foreign film title, that it affects the quality of the movie? No one would do that. And I think the title in the context, in the context of the characterizations, is great. I'd have liked it mentioned in the movie personally. But I thought the critic, Adam and Joe, who I love, but a lot of the criticism started with the title. And I think that showed what I consider the insularity of certain types of people. Well, who, you know, it led us to where we are now in our political system. And of course, I think that's part of that kind of very um, kind of gammony attack on this film from, you know, what are these people doing? And I think it's just slightly questionable, especially in context of it. You know, I might listen to Mark Como and said, would you say that about a French film? Would you say that about a Japanese, a Korean film? I don't get the title. It's a crap movie. No one would ever say that but they said it for Quantum of Solace as part of the critique of it, you know. Now, it doesn't actually matter Mm. what a Bond film title is generally because, I mean, what did the living daylights mean in the context of the living daylights, you know? But if you're going to (laughs) go for something, if you're going to gun for something, you know, that it showed that that they were just out to get it on a non-rational basis, in my view. Yeah, you wouldn't get away with Thunderball now, would you? But uh, it works in the context of the movie. Yeah. And and now if you see Quantum of Solace on a poster, you know, it's the title of the Bond film. It's actually not even something you would consider being something but to when, criticize But when for, you review Thunderball, think. you wouldn't, as part of your negative review, cite the lack of understanding of the title as the reason why you didn't like it, which is what they did with Quantum of Solace. It's not that you don't like the title, that somehow impinges upon the enjoyment of the story was a theme in some critiques. Indeed. Right, Pinewood. Obviously, this film uh, shot at Pinewood as well. AJ, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, it started in January in 2008. You know, they had a a shooting, starting pistol to get the movie made. Uh, Dennis Gassner was, was, as you've mentioned, the production designer. He'd come from independent cinema as well. Um, He'd done Coen Brothers, a really good film called The Hudsucker Proxy. I think he'd been Oscar-nominated. And he took over the sets and he claimed to sort of want to be inspired by Ken Adam. And there's a great picture of him, Ken Adam, and I think Peter Lamont. Um, and, you know, they used the shot at Pinewood Studios. And um, then they also did a lot of location shooting and dressing sets in Panama City, doubling for, you know, Bolivia and other places. So, yeah, I think it, there was a uh, you got these wonderful, you know, reinvention of M's office or the Ministry of Defence, you got another version of M's home. And I think, um, yeah, he did an interesting job. Uh, I I don't know whether it was that distinguishable from Peter Lamont, but he, you know, he certainly filled the frame with interesting shapes. I think the the hotel at the end, the Atacama Desert, 
was an interesting uh, set piece. And again, working with the director of photography, Robert Schaffer, he had this colour palette, which was apparently based on Daniel Craig's face, the blue eyes and the, the blonde hair, the skin tone. Um, apparently, um, Mark Foster did not like the colour green, so you, we rarely see it in the picture. And I think if you watch all his pictures, they have a similar palette as well. Um, and I think the work, you know, they they dressed various sets. I mean, they went back to the Reform Club, um, which they'd used in, as blades in Die Another Day. Here it was the Foreign Office, where Tim Bigot Smith has his office. They went to Body Worlds, that um, flightless, the kind of anti-gravity place with, with hot air, with, with hot air sort of where Daniel Craig and uh, Olga Kurilenko could be filmed actually doing the weightless sequences. And then they went to various a virgin private facility um, in England, which counted as the airport in Bregenz. And of course, then Bregenz, this wonderful floating opera sequence um, with the with the eye and Tosca, a very nouveau, very modern. And I think kind of the language they were looking for in this movie sort of once again, it's not that very mahogany kind of traditional worldview that Casino Royal essay. This was already looking for a new language, both visually and in its settings. And I think that that was what uh, Dennis Gaston managed to do at Pinewood Studios and managed to sort of uh, give it that set. There's that wonderful hotel set, which was created on the stage at Pinewood. And then the interior of the Atacama sequence was shot at the 007 stage. Um, I think, was there not an explosion there that went a bit awry as well? I was lucky enough to be on the back lot and I saw the... Um, the exterior of the Atacama Desert Hotel, the Isla de Perlas. In fact, that location, Daniel Craig says later, is his favourite location because it's an observatory in real life. And he said you could see it's the highest point in that region, the driest point. So you could see the stars very clearly. And Daniel Craig has cited that as his one of his favourite locations. And once again, I think it was a wonderful location, slightly underused, actually. It's quite exotic, but it kind of just is used as a hotel, you know, as the denouement. But yeah. I enjoyed the week's sequences. Coffee? Medium sweet. Two medium sweet. Thanks for listening. We hope you're enjoying the James Bond A to Z podcast. Remember, if you want to support the show, we have a coffee page at ko-fi.com forward slash James Bond A to Z, where you can buy us a coffee for just £3 or for £3 a month. Thanks for listening. Back to the show. Is that all it does? Well, let's have a closer look at the South American stuff. I actually think this film has one of its pros is that it spends a lot of time in, in South America and it gives it a sense of location um, that you sometimes you know, it's a bit hit and miss in some Bond films, but this really feels sort of South American, uh, Latin flavoured um, in its in its setting. Um, and so, yeah, in February 2008, the production moved to, was in Panama City and Panama doubled for Haiti and Bolivia in the movie. Um, the harbour scenes were filmed um, in the city of Cologne, where, and this is where Bond meets Dominic Green. Um, and this is where they did the boat chase sequence as well, um, the action sequence there. Um, 
when Bond is in La Paz, this is actually Panama City as well. And the Andean Grand Hotel was actually the National Institute of Culture. And as, as AJ said there, they uh, had the interior at Pinewood, but they gave the outdoor a huge makeover as well um, for the film to transform it into this uh, into this place, um, the Andean Grand Hotel. Um, talking about shooting on location, Barbara Broccoli was very praising of the, of the local support. They don't say that they don't have a huge film industry in Panama. And uh, that they had expected it to be much more difficult than it ended up being. Um, Green's fundraiser, the party that w- took place at a, a derelict place called the Club de Class Etropas, and that is a um, yeah, I think it was yeah, it looks like an old club that had gone derelict, but I think it looks great on film. They obviously tarted it up a bit. Um, and then, as touched upon before, you've got a second unit shoot happening in Mexico as well. And this is for the uh, the airplane sequence. Um, an interesting thing I learned about this was that when they shot that, they couldn't use like fake sn- fake uh, smoke for the when the plane is on fire. So they had to add all of that in in post in CGI. So uh, any of the effects that you see on there are, are all computer effects. So it's quite an uh, quite an amazing um, achievement, really. And then you've got the shoot in Chile as well. And you've got shooting in the city of Antofagasta. Um, and this is where they sort of doubled Chile for um, Bolivia. Yeah, and the Bolivian village is actually sort of in northern Chile. As mentioned by AJ, you've got the, uh, the desert hideout, which um, is Green's um, base. And that is the residentia of Paranal and it's uh, like I said it's it's used for studying the stars um, it's usually only occupied by about 20 people but there were 300 people there when the crew was there and Dennis Gaston said he found the location while googling de- deserts around the world and it was one of the first things he saw and when he told Mark Forster he showed it to him they were like yep yeah, this is where we want to do it so that's that um, so that like a long sort of shoot there in um, South America um, and that wrapped um, in April 2008 before they returned to Siena to complete the rooftop chase as discussed previous. But then just one more piece of location shooting to, to do. Yeah, so it's the, the shooting in Austria and um, on the floating opera stage, which takes place on Lake Constance. Um, and this, this is a, a festival that happens every July and August. So it's pretty incredible. Um, that it was used as part of this film. So from the 28th of April to the 10th of May 2008, they got 1,500 extras that were required to sit and watch a performance of Tosca. So it's, this is part of the Bregenz Festival. Currently, they are showing Madame Butterfly um, for the 22-23 season. Um, but for that year, it was Tosca. And um, basically, Mark Forster, Bob Rockley, and Michael G. Wilson had visited a dress rehearsal in 2007 and they were really enthusiastic and they definitely wanted to use it. Um, they said, Barbara Broccoli said, it's really an extraordinary place. The scenery is spectacular. And Michael G. Wilson said, what we saw in July 2007 was very impressive. James Bond movies have always taken the cinema audience to special locations. And the gigantic eye of the Tosca scenery is absolutely unique. Um, Mark Forster said that the Tosca scenery with the huge blue eye fits the story of the new James Bond movie perfectly. And um, it really is something that's visually, it is striking. Um, And Daniel Craig was um, 
pleased to get out to Austria as well because he'd never he'd never been. And he said it, it's fitting that it takes place um, in one of the movie's most important scenes. Um, they also shot a uh, a driving sequence in the nearby town of Feldkirch, and Mark Forster wanted to use the Swiss Alps, the nearby Swiss Alps, as a location, but it was written out in the final draft. And he has said previously that there was a couple of expensive ideas that were uh, shot down by uh, the producers. Maybe that's one of them, but I guess we'll we'll never know unless unless you've got any insight there, AJ. I don't know about that, but I know there were a lot. I just want to talk a little bit about some of the locations again. Panama City was used. It was, of course, used as Panama City in the Piers Brosnan picture, The Tailor of Panama. And here it was all substituted locations, which, alas, a lot of quantum of solace is. One of the things that informed and I think the filmmakers that Panama was, of course, the home of General Noriega, the kingpin drug lord that the Americans invaded. And the scene where, which is the party, where Dominic Green has his party, was actually a sort of high-value high club that had been bombed and destroyed by the Americans in the invasion and left as a ruin. And I think both Paul Haggis and Mark Foster liked that sort of that sort of sinister remnants of that place. Um, and I think also that it's interesting that, you know, when, when Mark Foster is sort of channeling Brigance and really enjoying that location, um, lots of those extras are actually Bond fans. I mean... People like Remit Van Brown, who runs Bond Lifestyle, Anders Frage, who runs from Sweden with Love, and a whole bunch of Bond fans uh, swamped down. A lot of the German fan club came there and the Swiss fan club, and they populated the scene. In fact, you can actually see Remit Van Brown and Anders Frage in the movie. Uh, the I think the assistant director, Toby Huffman, was quite friendly with that. So it's kind of the lunatics did take over the asylum in that sequence. And as I said, in the in the initial script, apparently it was going to be the finale, the coda of the picture. Um, and I think it's quite a striking moment in the, in the film. But yeah, as for deleted sequences or unseen sequences, of course, there was the ending, which was a confrontation with Bond and Mr. White, um, that I believe Mr. White is killed at the ending. Um, but that appeared, in fact, you could see the shooting lot in some German documentary. But of course, they, they didn't use that in the end. And there was this sequence at the orphanage in Albania, uh, which is now becomes the use of Cabrera scene. Bond tracks down, this child discovers it's uh, Vesper Linz and um, just pays the nuns money. And that, again, again, I don't think that was ever shot. Um, there was, I believe, a long idea to shoot, extend the boat chase in Panama with the mangrove snopes, because that area is filled with mangroves, but I think that was deemed too expensive and nixed. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff that they sort of thought about that didn't quite get there. But again, I like the, the location. One of the things about a lot of the Daniel Craig or a lot of the recent Bond movies, they have these substituted locations. You would never go to Japan and just shoot at a volcano now. Or you wouldn't just shoot at the set piece. But increasingly, they go to Iceland and shoot the Ice Palace. They don't go to Brigands and just shoot the opera. A lot of that happens now. And I think the location work, doubling for Bolivia, is successful with David Arnold's great score and also Louise Frogley's costumes. Um, and I think that conveys a sense. Otherwise, it's quite an anonymous location, um, considering they didn't step foot in Bolivia. And, of course, I think that caused a lot of... Um, 
there were some protests on set because they felt Panama wasn't being represented or Bolivia wasn't being represented properly. But I think they soon got over that. I think this film also marks Greg Wilson's first picture where he has a lot of hands-on experience. And he's sort of Michael Wilson's younger son and looking to, and the associate producer on the current movies and will probably take over from Michael Wilson and pair with Barbara Rockley in the future. So I think this was his first real real onset experience, and I know he's quite involved in that down there. So, I mean, it was a, a rapid, rapid shoot, um, and it, uh, from according to records, the rap party was held on the 21st of June 2008, and the premiere date was set for the 29th of October 2008. That's 130 days from wrapping the movie to premiering it which just sounds absolutely insane um if you ask me um so let's dive into post-production and have a look first of all at the song that uh, was made for quantum of solace well famously or infamously the song artist was going to be amy winehouse she was chosen i think in about late 2000 and early 2007 it's interesting that a lot of the Bond artists um, have are chosen quite early in the process in these films and they can record a song and have then plausible deniability whether they want it released or not. Matthew Field and I just did a really good bit of journalism on the License to Kill theme by Rick Clapton and then you had the Spectre theme by Radiohead and these songs are recorded way in advance and then either find approval and didn't find approval. And the Amy Winehouse song, now it, there's lots of conflicting evidence. David Arnold told us for Some Kind of Hero that, you know, they'd sort of begun the work and hadn't quite finished because Amy had problems. There's a memoir written by um, Amy's father, which talked about Amy was ensconced at a rural studio owned by a band member from the band Jethro Tull. And they wanted her outside London because to avoid all the drug temptations. And Mark Ronson had actually written a completed backing track for it. And then they were going to have discussions with David Arnold, but Amy couldn't write the lyrics or couldn't find the time. She was in a bad way. I believe Barbara Broccoli attended this studio with lots of kind of uh, local London food, kosher food for Amy Winehouse to sort of keep her pepped up. But alas, it wasn't to be. And when they had to make that reversal, uh, tantalising, Mark Ronson went on to produce Duran Duran. I'm sure that song would have been very interesting. We could have had a stellar hit. They went to uh, eventually uh, Jack White, a famous indie rock artist, rather like Daniel Craig's first Bond movie, Chris Cornell. They went for an act that really appealed to US college radio. A Bond song by this time, was servicing a lot of demands. It was a great marketing tool. It wasn't nearly about sales and record sales. The bottom had fallen out of the music industry by this time because of um, uh, all the software and file sealing. So sales, and it was about getting awareness and marketing and reaching a quadrant that wouldn't be necessarily reached. And this was the person with the overseeing this, apart from, of course, the directors and the producers, was a woman called Leah Volock, who was the head of Sony Music at the time, a rock chick who was an indie chick who is self-described and she probably sourced Jack White and Jack White has recently spoken about him wanting to do a Bond song, him channeling the Memphis horns and having this soulful 
sassy song and then he brought on Alicia Keys and again produced what appears to be a controversial song that I like. Again, it's a different flavour. Following on from Chris Cornell, again, following the established Daniel Craig, it was sort of creating its own kind of masculine energy and it not being a ballad and a kind of stranger danger theme. This was a kind of sinewy lyric with a long song line in this, the first duet for a Bond song. And um, again, controversial, especially with the uh, MK12 titles. But I think, again, it holds up. It's something different. It's something that has its own flavour. And again, I think the, the film benefits from it. But also its detractors will cite this once again as the kind of the old guard. Oh, it's not John Barry. It's not David Arnold. It's a shame David Arnold couldn't get a song in the film because when David Arnold co-writes a Bond song, it's really wonderful. I think the Chris Cornell thing works and it would have given thematic community, uh, continuity in the picture. But yeah, the song, um, you know, didn't reach the top of the charts and didn't really um, worry Oscar voters or award winning people. But it was, you know, it was seen as a progression in the Bond sound as well. And um, a lot of people like it. Jack White is still a credible, well-liked artist. He says he was very aware of the controversy over the song. And it's a kind of poison chalice to jump into it. But jump he did. And I, I, I kind of like it. Another, another Way to Die. It's, um, I don't know if you mentioned the title yet. But um, I have to say, I'm a big fan. I really like this um, this theme song. I know a lot of people don't, don't like it and cite it as one of the worst Bond theme songs. But um, I, when it comes on... I'm I'm into it. it. It it revs me up, um, and I guess that's what they were hoping for with the movie. What do you think of it, Brendan? I like it as a song, but not as a Bond song. Right. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at. It's quite. It kind of goes with the movie. The in the kind of twisty turny. The theme of it. Who do you trust? Again, kind of going back to the Bond theme. This Bond film. Um, was kind of internationalized. So the Bond films are always about betrayal within the CIA, within the organization. The Bond films are more outward looking and they sort of have a bigger view of things. And I kind of like the lyric matches what you see isn't uh, what you should trust. Uh, you know, things are hidden in plain sight, like Quantum in Brigands is a kind of a real wonderful twist on a boardroom villainous sequence. And they, they have this wonderful hiding in plain sight, which is a kind of what, these fil- this film is about, you know, the intelligence is hiding in plain sight. Um, and I think the song goes with that. But yeah, I can imagine the people who wanted a Bond ballad and Shirley Bassey to come back. Um, of course, David Arnold took his motif and later wrote the song No Good About Goodbye um, for the Shirley Bassey solo album, um, the performance. And he says it wasn't written for the movie. It wasn't a band thing, even though the lyric contains solace in the title. Um, and I think it's probable as well that at that stage, the studio and the record companies decide who's going to be the song. It's a big business deal. I know Jack White was annoyed that his song debuted first on the Coke Zero commercial. And I think now artists have a lot more control as to the marketing of their song. Um but so we do, if you want to hear a Shirley Bassey Bond song, listen to No Good About Goodbye and imagine it over the titles. I think someone's put that on YouTube already. I, I think that's excellent. I really love that song. Do you think we'll ever hear any of the um, the Mark Ronson theme, AJ? Is it sort of a bit of a holy grail for, for people to track down now? 
Yeah, I mean, there's lots of Holy Grails. There's the Frank Sinatra song for Moonraker, uh, which I, uh, Johnny Mathis's version with Moonraker. The Eric Clapton thing got unearthed. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure Mark Ronson would be very aware of the value of it. Maybe he cannibalised it and used it for other songs and we don't know about it. But, yeah, it would be great to have him on record. Um, according to this Amy's father's biography, a memoir, it seems to be quite the way done. I mean, he was just waiting on lyrics. From what I understand, he was frustrated that Amy wasn't coming to complete this song. He'd done his bit. I think he was in London. So we, I guess at some point the truth will emerge. Uh, for it. But, yeah, it's one of these things that, you know, um, there's lots of Bond Holy Grails, I mean, that, that could emerge about this film. But um, let's see. In 2009, I attended, there was a, the, the BFI, the National Film Series, that then had a broccoli weekender celebrating our, our broccoli centenary. And Mark Foster gave a talk, and I think they showed the movie at the NFT1. And I think, ironically, Lewis Gilbert was there um, sticking the boot in, probably in front of Mark Foster, which was vaguely amusing. But Mark Foster had said he had record, just recorded a director's commentary for the picture, which, alas, we never got to hear. It would be really good to hear a version of that. I don't think people who don't like the movie will like it more, but sometimes it helps you understand kind of the thought process behind it. Yes. Um, hopefully one day we, we might learn some more. But, um, yeah, one a part of the movie that was affected by this change in the music was obviously the titles sequence, as we touched upon. MK12 were hired to do that. Um, and and they said that the the... They the first they knew about the Jack White Alicia Keys track was on the day that they began shooting for the titles because they captured some new footage for the titles, and that was the first day they'd um, um, heard the actual song for itself. So they knew he said we knew about the delays, so we had worked some flexibility into the titles to a the title sequence to account for differences in tempo. The White Keys track was more high energy than we'd expected though, so we had to do a lot of fancy footwork on set to make sure we were covered. And it is quite an interesting title sequence. It sort of returns a little bit to what you expect from Bond titles, you know, in terms of the the, the scantily clad women. Um, but it's a lot of computer graphics, um, more sort of CGI than we've sort of come to expect from Daniel Kleinerman. Um, and MK, MK12, like I said, they worked across all parts of the film and they were originally only brought in to do, I think they said they were only brought in to do the graphics, but then they were you know, asked to do the, the titles as well. They said there was no specific brief constraints or thoughts. It was about taking the information and opening up a dialogue with the producers and Mark and getting the download of their mindset and what their thoughts were conceptually about the character and the story. Um, and they, um, yeah, they obviously also created the gun barrel at the end Um and this is the first time it's been used at the end. Uh, they were aware of the controversy around that. And they said, but I think it was a very wise decision since it calls out to people. That this is the first direct sequel. It feels like you should watch Quantum of Solace and Casino Royale back to back. Um, so they said they spent about a year doing the titles. Um, and that was them sort of coming up with ideas, doing presentations, going backwards and forwards with the produ produ producers. And then in terms of the production, it took them about a month and a half to put it all together. Um, so it was a pretty fast, fast schedule for them as well. Um, they said they did a four-day shoot and then one day, which was all practical fan effects. Um, and they had, like I said, female talent there. 
and um, they also spent a day with Daniel as well. Um, and then the rest was all sort of post-production, putting all the video um, visual effects on it. So Daniel Kleinman, who had done the title since GoldenEye, was asked about the Quantum of Solace title sequence. And he said, I thought the title sequence actually was rather good. It felt different and quite rightly so from what I do. They'd made it their own thing, which was cool. So quite magnanimous of him um, to say that, really. Uh, he would then return for um, Skyfall Spectre and No Time to Die. And hopefully will continue to do them for many years to come, because I think he is a great creative on the Bond films. So on to the music. And we have David Arnold back. He had done the previous four Bond films. Um, and Mark Forster you know, likes to work with his own, so... I guess it's quite lucky that he went with David Arnold, but um, he he actually said one of the things I wanted to do was bring my crew, the people I've worked with in the past, to the Bond films. Though in regard to the composer, David Arnold had scored several of the previous Bonds, so the producers had me listen to his music and meet with him. I met with him and I thought it was interesting because I'd replaced everybody else but would have this continuum going through Bond, through David Arnold, and actually it was a collaboration. I really enjoyed it very much. So David Arnold said that his intention was to uh, work with the script, uh, so take impressions from reading the script and really work it out, work out the storyline and, and, and how it worked. And then it worked the other way as well because Forster edited that into the film, so he was sort of using cues uh, within the film. Um, so it was quite a collaborative uh, method and not something we, we always see. I, I yeah. love David Arnold's score on this. I think it's I think it's terrific. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, I mean their standout cues are. I think it's interesting they cut the picture to some of his score, and uh, I think Night at the Opera that sequence and the way they cut that was again a stylistic piece of bravery, and I think it's very haunting and melodic. And David Arnold is not given enough credit sometimes, I think, for kind of updating the Bond sound and. Um, Again, sort of going with the titles. Again, any film that has an elaborate title sequence gets my vote. And I, while the MK12, which was a kind of Midwestern collective of various people who'd worked, as you said, on previous Mark Foster films, watch The Kite Runner. There's some very good titles there and some good graphics in Stranger Than Fiction. I think it sort of brought the language on. But uh, Daniel Kleiman, who I think is one of the key, key wonderful artists of the new reign of Bond, it was magnanimous of him. But I think... They were effective titles. And I, and again, the harmony of those score and that, that kind of the Bond sound was updated and given you resonance. It's a shame that it appears to be David Arnold's last Bond score to date, but I think he left uh, really well. And uh, I think um, he never handed in a bad Bond score, I think. You know, I think uh, he really gets it. He's I think towards the end, he wasn't just uh, channeling Barry, but he then brought the language forward himself for the music. And I think that's what Quantum of Solace really displays. So let's, uh, that's sort of wraps up the the production. Like I said, the, the, the editing is a huge part of this film and should be mentioned that um, a lot of people sort of criticise the editing um, style on this film. So, I mean, that that is the big part of it. And you've got to wonder whether if they had more time, whether the editing might have you know got better over time because i understand i or i heard i don't know if i sure this is but mark forster likes at least 14 weeks to work from uh to even just deliver his first cut and i think 
that was about the time that he had to just deliver the whole thing, which is kind of crazy, really. Well, but yeah, like I said, sorry, can go I just on. Talk a little bit about Bond films and production because when people say that, they I don't think they quite understand how kind of films are made. So the film is you borrow money from a studio to make a film, and you pay interest on that movie on that money. So you start the movie as late as possible and you finish it as early as possible. Uh, you don't have years of editing on a mo- on a movie with this size budget because it will cost you a lot of money. Mark Foster, of course, had been used to doing smaller movies. And knowing that they have a short post-production schedule, all the heads of the department know before, so they shoot in camera, they shoot for real, they, they build in the short post-production scheme. It's a budgetary thing. It's also a scheduling thing to get the movie out. And yeah, I think sometimes a filmmaker needs to let the movie sort of maturate and have a view on it but I think he went in with eyes wide open. Matt Chesse who's a great editor and his friend was one of the key people that helped persuade um, Mark Foster to do the picture is a huge Bond fan and I think they went in with eyes very much open and they, they built sequence I think they edited as they went along but yeah the movie has you know has those Bourne-esque cuts that, that energy that people don't like I don't mind those sequences because I don't mind the Bourne movies. I think story-wise it gets a bit of bleak, say, in the boat chase, to be fair, and I don't quite know what's going on. But they had lots of problems shooting that and they had all sorts of um, problems shooting that. So maybe they made the best of a bad fist. But I think otherwise, I think everything is clear and concise and the action sequence aren't long extended sequences. They sort of come and go very quickly so even if they had 15 weeks or whatever they wouldn't because it costs a lot of money even spectre and um, all the bond films now have a very short post-production scheme shorter than most films of their type that's why they shoot it in camera they shoot it real knowing that they won't have time or that they're reprioritizing their time to make it martin scorsese for example takes a year editing his pictures but you know they're significantly lower budget and the interest on a year on that budget is much less than interest on a, I think this picture went to, I think, $250 million as the stated budget. So in 2008, which is the same budget that um, Skyfall, uh, that um, No Time to Die and um, Spectre claim to have had. So, you know, but there's all sorts of malarkey there. So, yeah, I think the... um, the editing style obviously was controversial, but Dan Bradley working uh, from the Bourne mythos, and I think um, they obviously wanted to channel the. As I said, there are other daring editing choices, such as Night of the Opera, such as the pre-title sequence where they take these sort of slow motion cuts. So there's things that are quite unborn esque as well. Yeah, I mean it's um, it's just a, a hypothetical, I guess, isn't it? If they'd given it more time, but you, I mean that's that's quite clear, sort of. Um the way you've explained it there in terms of the money involved and the interest accrued that, uh, yeah, I guess that that kind of does make sense. But yeah, why don't you tell us about the, the premiere and the, and the response to the film when it came out, AJ? Well, it came out in 2008, I think, was it October 2008? They had a premiere in um, the, the Odin West, the Odin Leicester Square, and I think another cinema, and uh, at the same time, it wasn't the Albert Hall. And um, the reviews of it and the perception, the premiere was great. All the stars turned up. Was it Quantum of Solace where Daniel Craig is in a sling 
he's 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 hurt his arm and he's working the crowds because he's pulled his arm and he's pulled a socket from his arm. They get another injury on a movie. And um yeah, it was at the time it was the follow-up to Casino Royal. The movie's box office worldwide was slightly shy of Casino Royal, but not much, which showed that enough people went to see it. It was enough of a hit. But critically, yes, I I think it suffered from the sophomore slump. It wasn't Casino Royal too. People's expectations were dashed. And I think the storytelling and the style of direction um, put a lot of fans off. There were those like me that liked it from the beginning, liked the fact it wasn't Casino Royal 2. The, the things people don't like about it are the things who are fans of it do like about it. It was finding a new language, moving on. Um, like I say, Eon were not down on it. They were very proud of it at the time. Subsequently, I think they found fault. It's the movie that isn't referenced in Skyfall. You know, it's a kind of the, the orphan child of the of the of the current state of Bond movies. But I, I think it's um, it's you know it, it is its own flavour. I mean, I saw it at the Prince Charles Cinema a few months ago, and it zipped by because I, I, I think it's the shortest Bond movie, or after Goldfinger, one of the shortest yeah. Bond movies, and um, it zips by, and it's not you know, three hour, two and a half hour, two and a quarter hour thing. And it's got its own flavor. And I think maybe people revisiting it armed with a bit more knowledge and appreciation, knowing it's not going to be Casino Royal 2, knowing it won't have a henchman or gadgets and things like that, um, will sort of find itself in the, in the movie again. But yeah, at the time, again, artistically, Mark Foster and the writer, Paul Haggis were, these were big names and they, they were seeking, um, a lot of credibility. I think Daniel Craig's Bond always had artistic credibility, especially amongst the critical consensus. Um, later films, of course, would get nominated for Oscars and BAFTAs. And uh, so this didn't quite meet, match Casino Royals um, thing. But I think it was the beginning of, shall I say, Art House Bond. And um, this, I think this was ambitious and strove to do things. And for some of us who like it, we appreciate it. And for others... Uh, they don't but yeah I think box office wise as I said it did slightly shy of Casino Royals box office which was a huge step change from I think it was about just over 600 million dollars worldwide which again was a higher gross than all the Pierce Brosnan's by about 300 million so the high grossing bonds had come to stay and I think worldwide it showed there was Daniel Craig's movie you know people had taken to Daniel Craig as Bond in terms of the um, the awards, I mean, there was no major awards uh, for Quantum of Solace to talk about. Um, it was nominated for a number of Satellite Awards, um, Empire Movie Awards, Critics' Choice Awards, um, Saturn Awards. Um, uh, but the Visual Effects Society uh, gave it an award for the outstanding compositing in a feature motion picture. Um, so... I mean, for a film that's, you know, people talk about the uh, sort of gritty realism of it, that's quite interesting. And I think sort of an indicator of where things go with Bond films, where the uh, the visual effects, um, the CGI sort of uh, compositing and that sort of stuff steps up and, and does a lot of, um, um, uh, allows the filmmakers to be a bit more forgiving in terms of what they include, because um, they can fix a lot of it in post. So uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, award for it to to get. So in terms of um, uh, what our followers thought of the film, Brendan, have you got many three-word reviews? Well, we got we got we got over sixty. It was you know it's it's one that uh, clearly sparks debate 
Um, so I've just picked picked a handful. Um, we've got Space Odds 1985 said ambitious bloody mess. <laughs> George Aldridge, uh, friend of the show, uh, said unlucky production window. Fat. Daddio said strawberry fields forever, uh, which isn't accurate because she died. So yeah. <laughs> spoilers. Um, <laughs> Trevor Baxendale said underrated killer bond. Mm. I, um, I, I'm acquainted Earth, with Trevor Baxendale and he's a very good writer as well so he knows what he's talking about um, Quantum of Gemmel said exciting, stylish, raw mm. Patch says confusingly unrealised potential and and then there's a bit of a theme here we've got Ursus Leiter, Double O Kevin um, and Stephen W saying deserves a rewatch better every viewing and repeat viewing required so definitely seems like one that needs to be revisited to start to appreciate it. But, but then the problems appear and you've got um, D Chantry and Tweets See Ghosts saying jumpy editing sucks and the editing sucks. So again, that's one of the problems people have with with the film. But uh, you've got Slay Ride said ages like wine, but then to counteract that, Juan Fajardo said age is like vinegar. So, you know, it's uh, <laughs> it really it really is splitting down the middle and there's there's people saying brutal bond belter from It's Me Billy. Um, um but I thought I'd pick this one out. Um and remember this is not my opinion. Uh, it's from Color Horizon Reviews. It says shit last act. Oh wait, <laughs> that that covers every Craig film. Bond Ooh. goes rogue. Oh, wait, that covers every Bond film. Whining about Vespa. Oh, forget it. I thought that was, uh, that was funny. You can't actually <laughs> argue with that. They're, they're right, you know. Bless them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean 60, 60 responses to the three-word review request is mm. a lot. I mean, that shows yeah. that it's a, a film that is in the conversation. Yeah. Um, and, and as we move on to this sort of final section about the legacy and the reputation of the film... I would say that, you know, for a long time, Quantum of Solace had, um, was, was sort of the whipping boy of, um, of sort of modern uh, Bond films. I think it was sort of the one that people, it was almost like a, the byword for a bad Bond movie. And, you know, it still, it still gets ranked very low down. But I would say, you know, since the release of Spectre and, and, then, and then No Time to Die, I, I feel like that people are coming round to it a bit more in sort of in um you know with it in perspective now i personally uh if i'm looking at the daniel craig era you know casino royale is is top for me followed by skyfall and then followed by no time to die i don't think quantum of solace lives up to those but in terms of this and and specter which again has it had its own issues i think it's 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 hard both films that have their criticisms that are valid but for different reasons do you know what i'm saying um, yeah no absolutely mm. i think it's interesting what that's a good point you make tom about watching quantum now through the prism of these last three movies um i think it has been rehabilitated like i said i saw it at the cinema and it we were talking before about the bond films at the cinema and it'd be interesting to the reaction to see quantum of solace when people go and see it at their local cinema whether 
time has been kind to it, whether their expectations post-casino royal are sort of now forgotten, whether people just watch it for what it is and give it a bit more of a ride. And again, the poor Bond fan, you know, their worst Bond film, I remember, was Die Another Day. That was the worst Bond film ever made. No, wait a second, it's Quantum of Solace. That's the worst Bond film ever made. No, wait a second, it's Spectre. That's what it's... you know, what kind of fan hates every Bond film even worse? You know, in some, some way you've got to kind of give it. But I get, I get the kind of disappointment factor, but I'm hoping that some people will come around. And you know what? If you don't like it, you know, you can shove in Moonraker uh, on your 4K or you can watch XY Skyfall for the umpteenth time and, you know, it's fine. Another one comes around. At the, at the minute, but yeah, I think Quantum is a bit like. Remember, the worst Bond film for a long time amongst the general public was On a Majesty's Secret Service. That was a given, wasn't it? And now that's been completely rehabilitated. So maybe Quantum might not be quite a Majesty's, but I think it will find a new sort of voice. I think. Brendan, what do you think? Well, I'm actually. This is one of them that I'm looking forward to seeing it at the cinema in in a few weeks' time. And I have a sneaking suspicion that I will be looking at it fondly, I think. Especially Steady on the big on. screen. I think on, that, makes, that makes a huge difference. Um, but yeah, I, I, I can see myself um, getting on board with this after watching it on the big screen again. I think an interesting conversation around Quantum of Solace is, uh, is around how quickly they turned it around after Casino Royale. Um, because I know one of the common complaints from Bond fans now is how slowly it takes Eon to turn a Bond film round. You know, we're waiting sort of three, four, five, six years for the next Bond film to come along. And a lot of Bond fans say, you know, that's just not good enough. And the next time around, we know we want them every two years like they used to be. But when you look at it, and the last time they got a, a film out within two years... That just nowadays just it's not enough time. There is not enough time for for them to turn these f- films around in 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 a quick succession like they used to. Um, I wonder what why why that is. What do you think, AJ? What's the well, what again, is it that makes these films I, I more difficult? I tried to explain this before. When people say that, they just don't quite understand what happens. Even though there's a five year gap, they're not working for the picture for five years. The minute they greenlight a movie, they hire a writer. That writer might cost $200,000 under Guild Rules to create a screenplay. They are The reason there's been delays is because the studio from the distributor hasn't greenlit the movie. So they're not sitting around waiting. So the minute they get the greenlight, the minute they do that, it's probably a two, two, two and a half year cycle. It's not. It didn't take them five years to make, or four years to make Spectre or five years to make No Time to Die. They started production, they started writing probably two, two and a half years in. So, and if they're constantly being in that development chain when they're writing, they're co-writing scripts, which may be happening now, I suspect they're going to be developed multiple screenplays. That's what will happen. So they could wait six years. It still takes the same amount of time to write a Bond movie and to produce a Bond movie. They all start shooting at the top of the year, they finish that, you know, they're not starting to shoot it two years beforehand. So it's the same time to go for the financial reasons I've told before. So they could take 10 years. The Spy Love Me, there was the three-year gap. They didn't spend three years writing it, you know. And they, they had all sorts of issues 
back then. So I think that under, that misunderstanding of how films are put together and financed from the inception and the cost centres is not understood by fans that say that. And they haven't understood the block on the movie and the ownership. If MGM, who's the studio that co-owns it, doesn't green light your movie, it do, there's no money spent on it. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, in terms of the, the the quick turnaround on this one specifically, do you think it was it sort of pressures from Sony to to sort of capitalise on the success of, of Casino Royale that sort of put it on this trajectory that they sort of couldn't get out of? Absolutely, they had a massive hit, the biggest Bond hit ever, and they they put all their weight to it. It probably cost a lot of money. So that two hundred fifty million dollar touted budget, a lot of it isn't on the screen; it's on large salaries for people working quickly, the man hours. I mean, you know about this, Tom. It's about, you know, the amount of man hours to turn the picture around in. Um, I think, you know, you kind of got a version of that, dare I say, with the man with the golden gun after Live and Let Die. They they wanted a new hit quickly. So I think that's what's tend to happen. Skyfall was announced for 2010, or Bond 23, was going to come out in 2010. There was never any thing to make it 2012 but the studio went bankrupt so they had to refinance again no development began on skyfall in reality until 2010 they weren't making it from 2008 2009 onwards and spectre similarly you know they had a break daniel craig wanted a break there was a recontract negotiation so if you look at when the script was first commissioned which costs a lot of money which means interest on that money um, or recce's or location scouting, that's when your film begins pre-production. And that isn't... They weren't scouting and working on it for six years. So that's a, yeah. just a fundamental misunderstanding of how pseudo movies are made and financed, you know. Well, you've got, like, Marvel pumping out three or four films a year. Um, no, people no, expect I understand everything totally. to be the same. But Marvel... Yeah. There's another thing that, until Amazon had bought MGM, MGM had been a very cash-strapped studio. And they just don't have the money to develop or mm-hmm. choose not to spend the money to develop separate Bond movies. They did a bit after Casino Royale. So Marvel is, a, again, if you understand Disney are financing Marvel and they've got that vision from Kevin Fee and they're not paying large sums to above-the-line talent back then, in 2009, Robert mm. Downey Jr. wasn't getting large amounts of money, which Daniel Craig now is getting um, or was getting. Uh, I understand why people think that, but if if they just sort of understood how movies are made, the business end of it, they would understand that what they say just doesn't hold any sort of water. Everyone in the business knows. No one is saying, oh, why don't they make it? No one ever spends their own money on a movie. And indeed, maybe they can't, maybe because it's co-owned. It has to go all sorts of rights issues as well. If I pitch an idea to Barbara Broccoli and Michael Wilson, they can't hear it because there'll be copyright infringement. So it's got to go through a very graduated process. There's all sorts of rules of Writers Guild and all that stuff and payments. So they can't spend six years. Or they maybe could, but they don't. So mm-hmm. unless people understand, I get... Marvel is often cited, but again, the same rules apply to Marvel, just they've got more money and they invest more money quickly into it. Remember, Marvel is owned by um, Disney and it's totally funded. There's no individual producing a Marvel movie. Kevin Feige is the titular head, but it's a wholly owned entity 
whereas Cubby, uh, whereas Barbara and Michael co-owned Danjak, and they are an artistic producing central that need the cooperation of a studio. Disney doesn't. Disney just says, we'll do whatever we want, and we'll put money into it. There's a massive difference yeah. in the organisational and financial structure of a Bond movie that may change with Amazon. We don't know. Hmm. It's just a misunderstanding of how movies are made. Yeah, and no one's complaining about Mission Impossible saying, oh, why aren't we getting more of these movies? They've made less movies in the time they've been running than Bond films have. So um, it's it's a tricky one. But, I mean, let's just quickly turn to the critical reappraisal. I mean, you suggested that it might um, have that sort of um, effect. I would argue that, unfortunately, I think there are some fundamental issues with, with Quantum that are, are hard to overcome for some people. One of them being Dominic Green being sort of a fairly weak villain, um, something we've already discussed, and and then sort of lacking the sort of narrative cohesion that say something that like License to Kill was one that people said you know wasn't very good, and now people you know rave over it. I don't think this has the narrative cohesion of something like License to Kill. Um, but yeah, interested to hear what 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 you think, Brendan. I think I agree. Uh, uh, you know. It's got. I mean, I don't feel strongly about any of it, really. I think that's that's part of the problem, isn't it? It doesn't yeah. make me. I don't hate it, but I don't love any of it either. Um, it's got some good set pieces. Um, the action is good. The choreography is pretty pretty on point. The soundtrack's great, um, but there's not enough in there to keep me coming back. Yeah, I think. So I understand that. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm going to sort of say that yeah, the. the the plot and the story isn't well told or exposited. In the same year, there was a movie directed by Tom Twyker called The International. It had a similar theme, and it was really visually well told, and you got and understood the story. A denouement where a man is signing a document in a hotel in the desert isn't a, isn't a bon denouement. You know, I think Dominic Green is underwritten and unformed. I think the chemistry between Bond and Olga doesn't quite work. I think there's all sorts of sort of storytelling issues that aren't quite resolved. Um, and I think maybe a slightly more exhibition, slightly more of a sense of threat, what this really means would have helped the kind of story points hidden in there. So I totally get why people, you know, and again, to be really crass about it, why didn't you have the gun barrel at the beginning? I mean, it's now playing mm-hmm. around with it for playing sake, but there you go. Right. Well, I think that probably is a good place to wrap up. I mean, we haven't mentioned the video game of Quantum of Solace. I haven't played it, Brendan. Have you? Uh, probably. I think it was just a Call of Duty reskinned, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But if, if you did play Quantum of Solace, the video game, and we and, and ha- should we have mentioned it, then please obviously email the show at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk um, and let us know your thoughts on it. Um, while you are emailing us, don't forget we're looking for your most underappreciated and favourite James Bond movie moments for our anniversary special. So record a, a two-minute or under audio clip of you telling us what your favourite underappreciated Bond moment is, and we'll include them in our anniversary specials. Again, that podcast email is podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk. So AJ, thank you very much for joining us. Um, what are you? What can you tell us about that you've got coming up in the world of Bond um, that you can share with our listeners? Uh, well, Matthew Field and I were are happy to. So we we are sort of working on an update of our book, some kind of hero. But I think we've got something coming out with MI6 Confidential, uh, which 
supposed to come out this year, a Sean Connery special like we did with Roger Moore, which is quite interesting, and a few other things in the fire. But we've got to wait to see what the, uh, the, the temperature of Bond is like. But, yeah, thank you very much, Tom. It's great chatting to you, getting to know you, fellow Beatles fan. Brendan, lovely to... Uh, cyber meet you and uh you do, guys do a great job i'm glad i got in here at q and um it, it's a great i love the journalistic nature of a to z bond and the guests you've had i'm honored to be amongst it and you know um i'm thrilled to be on here and defending you know i understand the uphill challenge defending quantum results but i just want maybe the worst we can do is get someone to think about it slightly differently you know and if you don't like it you know that's fine as well you know there's other Bond films you can exactly. enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And if people, uh, you're on social media, AJ, how do people find you? Uh, I'm on social media, but I'm not really an influencer like that. But uh, yeah, I'm on uh, you know Instagram and things like that. But yeah, no, that's more personal. But yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, watch out for our work coming out from MI6 Confidential and um, a few other places besides, you know. And and some kind of hero is the undoubtedly the indispensable Bond Bible. So uh, can heartily recommend it to anyone. Um, you and Matthew do an incredible job on that, and uh, I think everyone in the in the Bond world is is grateful for the work that you do. So thank you very much, and thanks for coming on, uh, Brendan. How do people find us on social media? At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Great, and with that, it just remains for me to say that the James Bond A to Z podcast will return next week where we reach the letter r aj thank you for joining us thank you guys appreciate it ciao ciao the james bond a to z podcast is hosted and produced by tom butler and brendan duffy with music by tom ingamals and artwork by helen dolly if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and leave us a rating and review on apple podcasts and spotify thanks for listening My name is Fields. I'm from the consulate. Well, of course you are. What do you do at the consulate, Fields? That's not important. My orders are to turn you around and put you on the first plane back to London. Those orders include my friend Mathis. I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. You see that? Gone such a short time, already forgotten. Uh, you're just saying that to hurt me. Mr Bond, these orders come from the highest possible authority. Taxi, Fields, when is the next flight to London? Tomorrow morning. Well, then we have all night. If you attempt to flee, I will arrest you, drop you off in jail, and take you to the plane in chains. Understand? Perfectly. After you. I think she has handcuffs. I do hope so.